0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Naturally Adventurous, um, our apologies that we've been off the air for a couple of weeks. Um, today we're going to hear from Ken who's been on a little uh, bit of a journey. Hi, folks. How are Hi you doing, Ken? Oh, doing well. <laughs> Recovering from my uh,
1: so-called vacation.
0: Yeah, I'm very um, excited to hear about it. Um, on my side, uh, yeah, life's been pretty much the same here in Thailand. Um, we're sort of at the end of the rainy season Um, should be going into the dry season soon, but everything's very green and all the rice fields are very beautiful. Um, we had a, a little festival last weekend, which was called Loi Kraton, which was very nice. Um, everybody puts out these colored lanterns outside their houses and set off fireworks um, and in all the little canals, they, they take sort of stems of banana trees that float in the water and they sort of put flowers on them and inc- incense and little candles and they float all these little homemade rafts down the canals. Um, so it's a very beautiful time of year, lots of very traditional music. So that's been, uh, that was a lot of fun last weekend. Is this the Floating Lantern Festival that we talked about in our uh, Life in Thailand episode? There was one before I was talking about, which was... yeah, I think it was actually. But another thing they do is they, they release these sort of aerial lanterns up into the air. That's what we were a, talking about, yeah, yeah. Well they, they do both, but they've actually outlawed the uh, the aerial ones because oh they, really it was burning it was burning too many old granny's houses down. So they uh, <laughs> <laughs> just in our little area, they, they you can still do that in the centre of Chiang Mai. Um, those uh old ladies houses are more expendable there but uh, yeah where, where we are they decided to err on the side of caution and just release these little small floating um ones that float down the uh the canals so yeah but it's still very beautiful we quite enjoyed that It actually turned out to be on on the same day as halloween because it's not a day it's sort of on the last full moon of the uh of, of the month or whatever so huh. The, uh, the yeah, it was
1: I'm of, impressed in Chiang Mai by the canals. I guess that's some kind of like yeah, medieval defense system, right? Like a moat system around the old defenses,
0: city. and yeah, I think um, and like transporting stuff as well. Um, oh, really? But it's uh, it's a yeah. It's got a lovely a lovely feel um, with all these like little little canals. the The old city is actually sort of it's exactly sort of two kilometers wide. It's like a square, two kilometer square. And that's the old city, and around that is a moat with a sort of very old uh, wall around it. So it's a very very historical city. So this is something my wife
1: and I were talking about on our last vacation, because we visited a few towns in Madagascar where we've never been Mm -hmm. before, some of the bigger towns. And some towns have this real sense of place and definition, where you sort of know, okay, Mm -hmm. this is the the centre-ville, or this is the downtown or the old town and some are just very diffuse and you're just never quite sure like are we here yet and so i like that in chiang mai that (laughs) you definitely know like okay across the moat this is old town
0: yep it's interesting in in madagascar at least like in tana with all the uh, all the all the buildings are sort of built up on these little hills and sort of in between it's like a sea of rice fields it's one of a kind as a as a city tana you know there's um
1: Nothing else like it in the world that I'm aware of, unless somewhere in the but Philippines the, you know, or
0: the, the, the sort of higher up you are on the hill, you know, the sort of the the kind of higher class or you know the importance is uh, is um, is greater. You need to get the parliament and the palace and stuff up on the up on the side of the, up on the top of the hill.
1: Yeah, I mean, Tana was originally there were, I believe it was seven royal families or you know sort of nobility that had their mm. royal hill. And, and then at some point, all those dynasties were, were united under one king, and then eventually it all just became
0: one city. So there's quite a dense history as to why things were that way. I, I always remember you telling me, because, you know, on the, on the way to the airport in Tanna, you drive past a huge American embassy. And, and I guess you were telling me it's been, it was built sort of low down, and everybody thought that was kind of weird, because if it's important, it should, be, it should be higher up on a hill somewhere.
1: Yep. Yep, culturally very much of an oddity that, that people don't From understand. Power, yeah, yep, just, You know, I'm sure it came down to the bottom line, like the cheapest big tract of land, and they just filled in a bunch of rice paddies and just built this thing. But yeah. yep, they don't understand why the Americans wouldn't want
0: a nice hilltop. Yeah, but it's been a ni- it's been very nice here over the last few weeks. It's um it's it's probably the coolest time of year and very green, and um, there's a lot of all the all the winter birds are sort of coming in, so he's getting all these little warblers and flycatchers, and so it's been, bird-wise, it's been quite good. Uh, last weekend, we tried to do a bit of a hawk watch, and there's quite a few raptors oh, really? coming through now. Oh, yeah. yeah. Chinese sparrowhawks and, uh, what, grey-faced yeah, buzzers like sort of Yeah, there's like a
1: falcons, and you get the odd eagle and stuff. It's quite... Uh, oh, uh, nice. I love migration. I, I really miss it here. Just one more question. I'm curious, uh, what is happening with sort of the reopening of Thailand. Is it? Is there any discussion about when the country might reopen or are they just waiting for a vaccine or what's you happening? Know, there
0: is a discussion and it's um, anybody involved in the tourism industry is, you know, their complaints are very strongly worded. They say, you know, you, this cannot go on. And it's basically, you know, we cannot go on losing money. Um, but the the government is just not um, interested in um, and having the whole uh, country be locked down again because there's, there's 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 zero community spread of COVID here. There hasn't been for months. Right. Um. They, we, um. Everyday life is just is just normal for us, and it has been for months and months. And so the majority of of people that, that aren't involved in tourism are very happy to be kept safe. But anybody with a hotel or anybody that works in tourism, um, but, well, you know, I, me included. But I I can definitely see why they're not opening up. Um, they, what they did is they've made a they had discussions about how to start opening up safely, and they made this thing like a long-term um, tourist visa, like a three-month tourist visa that you could extend up to nine months. Oh, really? And uh, but you still needed to do the two-week quarantine when you come in. Right. So now you ca- you can actually come as a tourist, but you you need to stay three months, and you need oh. to do two weeks quarantine. No, that's quite um, smart, though. That's, uh, yeah, might work. Yeah, there hasn't been many people. There's been a few hundred Chinese come in, um, but it's very, you know, c- considering we had like 40 million foreign tourists last year, you know, having 150 Chinese people come in, is pretty... Uh, right. <laughs> it's it, it's, it's dropping the bucket. Really, it's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, um,
1: Thailand is consistently in its global top three for
0: tourism. So, you know, it's a oh, big it's deal huge. economically. I think it's like twenty percent of the um, of the GDP is is foreign tourism, so it's it's big. But you know, countries, every all the countries have, you know, even countries that don't have tourism are suffering financially because of the lockdown. So you know, it's all sort of balances out. You know, if you don't have to lock down, then the rest of the economy can keep on going. You know. Right. Right.
1: So you're not going to sacrifice everything else for that. Twenty percent, even if it is quite exactly. a heavy. Exactly, you know, proportion. you you, op-
0: you open up and it comes in, and then you got to lock down everything and close down all the shops and again. You know, it's, it's also no, no good. So I think basically that we're not going to have a proper opening up until there's a, a vaccine. So it's going to still be a few months. So I'm I'm just sort of accepting that. So I certainly won't be guiding for a while. But uh, I'm, I'm I I've sort of given up my identity as a guide now and i've sort of created I'm, I'm sort of accepting my identity as a as a language student now <laughs> so, <laughs> I've, I've, I've sort of i've sort of thrown myself into that well they're both uh both always been passions
1: right so it's not too much of a yeah
0: it's just a change but of my gears. wife's doing some work now and i've got a few little bits so we're, we're, we're getting by financially but then um, yeah we're just doing what we what we need to do
1: I honestly don't know what the transition back to the old normal is going to be like, you know, for me and my family, everyone's used to me being here all the time. And even me, I, you know, I'm just, I'm used to being at home now and settled into those rhythms a bit. Now we did just do this big adventurous trip, but, uh, yeah, there's just a lot of open questions
0: I, I mentioned to my son that I you know, at a point I'd be I'd start doing tours and he had this look of dread in his face. Eh? He was like, Well, I, I'm used to you being around now, you know. And yep, yep. It was <laughs> so it brought a lump to my throat, you know.
1: I have the feeling, you know, Rinala's two and a half now and he's just far more aware of things and he's far more conversant mm-hmm. and I just think it's gonna be very tough when I leave the next time. Before it was out, it was kind of normal and he was less aware and like we've gotten pretty tight
0: this year. So yep. yeah, we'll see. Yeah, we will. <laughs> anyway, so I'm very uh, I'm very excited to hear about your little trip. Um, so uh, what have you been up to, Ken?
1: Yeah, so <laughs> we did a, a road trip in northern, sort of northeast Madagascar. And if you look at the the ground that we covered on a map, it seems very unimpressive and insignificant. (laughs) But if you know what those kilometers actually entailed on the ground, you realize that this was a far more strenuous trip than basically traveling all the way around the globe. So our main goal was to go to this national park called Marudzidz, which is a big isolated mountain massif in northeast Madagascar. And it's really, it's quite close, um, but the road to get there, goes from the, uh, one town called Ambila Bay to another called Voimar. And that road has just historically been like a byword for bad roads in Madagascar. And <laughs> if you know anything about how roads are in Madagascar, like to be, have a reputation as a bad road, you have to be a really, really bad road. Um, <laughs> now it's actually under construction now. So parts of it are better, ah. but you know, the good parts are you're driving through a massive construction zone on a, on a d- little diversion. But that's so much yeah. better than how it used to be that everyone views it as this great improvement. And then, but in the middle, there's this, this no man's land where it's been untouched and it's just, it's just horrific. I mean, it's sort of three hours to drive about 40 kilometers. Um, wow. So that's like 20, what, 24 miles or
0: something. Um, so you, What was you the just, habitat like on, on those bad stretches? Were, there, were you still driving through forest or what? No, no. I mean, there's not much forest. Um, but what's, so it's
1: really cool about this drive and this trip is the north where I live is in this dry microclimate, but as you move east, as we did on this trip, you transition into the Eastern zone, the rainforest zone. And so there's this area called Darina that we travel through. That's this weird transition area where you've got this semi deciduous forest and you've got some baobabs, but it's, it's starting to be moister and you pick up a few rainforest birds. Um, So, yeah, it's actually a pretty interesting drive and you do it at such slow speed that you can really take in the plants and the scenery. And uh, so you're kind of suffering, but you're actually seeing a lot as well. You know, I would occasionally stop and try to identify a tree and that sort of thing.
0: But were you driving your own vehicle or what?
1: Yeah, yeah, I drove our vehicle. So we drove from Diego all the way to Voimar and that took about 17 hours. So that was the first day of our uh, so-called vacation. And <laughs> aside from some little portions of the construction zone, it was just all dreadful road, even for the yeah. first five hours on the main so-called national road which is horrific. When I first moved here, that road took about two and a half hours. Now it took five hours in going, six hours in getting home.
0: Why has it got worse just because of the construction? Or what?
1: No, no. So this is this is a different road than the one I mentioned. Oh, okay. um, it's it, okay. it's just been untouched. So it's you know it's just a function right. of neglect. Just right. no maintenance. So getting getting to what's called the Sava region, which is that northeast portion of Madagascar, sort of far north northeast, was an epic uh, an epic journey. And then it's it's really a remarkably different world than where I live because it, it's this weird little self-contained area you have three major towns and they're actually all connected by pretty decent tarmac roads so once you cross that no man's land and get to the sava region it's it's actually very prosperous and relatively um good infrastructure and a lot Mm -hmm. of this is due to vanilla so Uh, madagascar produces about two-thirds of the world's vanilla and most of that is produced in the Sava region. So for Madagascar, it's actually amazingly wealthy. Just about anybody can grow vanilla there. Um, and there's been this huge uh, vanilla boom. I remember yeah, the first the time I went to is, Madagascar.
0: I gone up a lot, eh?
1: Oof, I, I mean, I, I think I bought a kilo of vanilla for $30 or something, um, one of my mm-hmm. first trips in Madagascar. Last year it was up to almost $300 for a kilo of vanilla. <laughs> so you can just imagine
0: the economic ramifications of that. Yeah, I bought maybe uh, half a kilo or 250 grams on, my, on one of my first trips. And then uh, I thought I'd do the same the next year and it had shot up. I was like, no, that's <laughs> no, not happening. Nope. <laughs> I was giving it away to friends as like little souvenirs and stuff. And then, yeah, it was ridiculous. So th- this was
1: a big part of our vacation was just learning about this vanilla industry on just every every aspect from the the villager who owns half a hectare and who's sort of doing the whole hand pollination thing up to we we actually made the trip with some friends of ours who have two kids so we had there was a ton of kids on this trip so we had two and a half year old 12 year old 18 year old 14 and 10 so we had this whole range of ages which was a lot of fun it really I think it (laughs) helped it helped me stay energized just the kids kind of endless energy of course, they like yeah. collapse in the back of the car and sleep for three hours, and then they wake up and they're energized. <laughs> and meanwhile, I've been driving the whole time, but that's okay. I just <laughs> still feed off their energy. Our friends, um, they stayed with family, and their family's in the vanilla business. And so right. they, at some point, they allowed us to go into like a vanilla processing warehouse that they run. And there was like One. 40 people. You know, you go through this little door. It's very inconspicuous. You go through a door, and there's like 40 people you know, uh, measuring vanilla pods and feeling the quality and you know, boiling them and drying them. And um, we got to see like a, a vanilla growing greenhouse, which is this very experimental thing. You know, right. traditionally uh-huh. it's been done in a sort of semi-forested or at least semi-wooded area. So yeah, vanilla, vanilla played large in our vacation. We visited a large scale estate of vanilla and just spent hours learning uh-huh. about it. And it was actually very interesting just objectively it has environmental ramifications uh, in some ways it's actually a good thing because vanilla requires some shade and so so it's a little bit like right. coffee in some respects like yeah, you can yeah, grow yeah. it in a more environmentally friendly way rather than yeah. just burning down everything and also just as as malagasy people and residents you know just learning about this thing which is it's our number one source of uh income in this country you just yeah. shed a lot of light on the way things
0: work in Madagascar. You've given me a little sneak preview of uh, of an interview we're going to um, air at the end of the podcast, but um, yeah, the the guy was was talking about how vanilla was sort of produced and pollinated, and I've actually seen that once, and it's um it's really fascinating, eh? Because you know you say oh it's got to be hand pollinated, but that, that doesn't really mean much unless you actually see what that entails. Exactly. It's a weird. It's such a
1: weird industry because apparently. Of the aggregate vanilla flavor used in the world, less than 1% comes from actual vanilla beans. So it's 99% yeah. synthetic. And despite that, you know, it's it's uh, Madagascar's uh, number one export. It's a weird, it's a weird industry. I just the more I
0: learn about it, it's uh, it's such a weird commodity. I guess everybody's more into food nowadays than they used to be, you know, so there's probably a big demand, you know, the sort of. I guess among well, yeah top chefs been, and uh, yeah. chocolate they makers make some, and uh, high quality Malagasy vanilla, you know, it's a status thing
1: these days uh, yeah, as well. Yeah. You know, real genuine vanilla. A lot of people probably couldn't tell the difference from synthetic, but uh, <laughs> it's a it's a status thing. I know there is yeah.
0: a there's a big difference in quality. I remember you know you travel throughout Madagascar and the people are always selling at little street vendors and in markets and stuff like that. But there is a big difference between. Just your, your little cheap vanilla that you'll buy on the street and then the really high quality, really fragrant stuff there.
1: Eh? Yep, yep, there is. That's. It's a quite a fragile commodity just all along the, the way, you know, in terms of how it's grown and pollinated and then processed and stored like at every stage. It, uh, it's quite right. the prima donna as far as agricultural products go.
0: <laughs> did you actually get into the national park yeah I, yeah we did we did so that was
1: actually even before we did all the vanilla stuff that was the first thing we did is we okay. went we went up to yeah. it's a big mountain it's uh, and it's sort of an isolated massif with a few different peaks but it's only about what is it seven thousand feet tall like 2100 some meters People Mm -hmm. often say it's the fourth highest mountain in Madagascar. That's definitely wrong. It's actually there's actually like forty mountains that are taller if you count all the individual peaks. Yeah. But when you climb this mountain, you're starting at basically sea level. You're starting at around one hundred meters, and you're going to twenty one hundred meters, and then you're doing this on trails that start moderately good and then just get narrower and narrower. And so there's three different camps inside of the national park and you sort of stage your way up the mountain. Mm-hmm. And, and the higher you climb, the worse the trail gets. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> the, the, tra- the trail from camp three to the summit is, you can barely call it a trail. It's like a very <laughs> narrow aperture through the
0: vegetation. It's I guess often... it would be quite easy to get lost if you're on your own, but I suppose you were a guide, yeah?
1: I actually did the, it completely alone. We, we, oh, had <laughs> two, yeah, we had two guides, but we had a bunch of, uh, you know, family and kids are here and there. Uh, and so, you know, it, it suited me. Um, right. It, and it's actually, there's only one trail. And although the trail is barely discernible, there's nothing really to confuse it with. So, but yeah, so, so my wife and our younger kids stayed at the second camp. They did the first and the second, and then me and uh-huh. the older kids and our friends, we summited. Uh-huh. We went up to Camp Three, and then, you know, woke up very early and climbed the summit to the summit, and then came back down and all met up Camp Two. It was an unbelievably arduous uh, climb. You know, I, it it kind of uh-huh. caught me off guard, but you know, you <laughs> think about it, like we both climbed a lot of mountains, but how many mountains have yeah. you climbed from sea level to two thousand meters? It's a big climb. I mean, the only thing is the top isn't that high, so you're really not suffering for oxygen. You know, it's, um, right. you got plenty of oxygen, but I think the low quality, like almost non-existent trail just made it incredibly hard. Uh-huh. I mean, you're, you're just walking on top of roots, like you might be a meter right. off the ground, just kind of clambering over yeah. roots and there's no steps and there's yeah. no... Um, it, was, it was just crushingly um, difficult. And it's weird, eh? I've, I've been doing a lot of uh, lifting during
0: the so pandemic. anybody that doesn't know, Ken's a pretty fit guy. So <laughs> when he says that's crushingly difficult, that would uh crushingly, it yeah. for most, <laughs> most people.
1: I, I've been doing a lot of lifting and I've really been focusing on my yeah. legs. And I, you uh, know, I think my legs are stronger than they've ever been before in terms of like how much I could squat but mm. this really didn't seem to translate into uh helping me get up and down this mountain it was weird <laughs> I, I was almost regretting all the all the leg work it was uh you know it, it oh, really? seemed like i had more muscle mass but it when that meant when it got fatigued it was just like burned out and gone uh, and it, i've never experienced this before i mean coming down the mountain i was just in in agony i mean i was like really? I was almost to the point of like crawling on the ground to stop you, using my thigh muscles. You know, you know when you're you're so exhausted, you're kind of trying to drag your body with. You're trying to use your upper body and kind of like lower yeah. yourself down rather than using your yeah. thighs. It was. Yeah. I think when I got close to camp, I kind of got a little shot of adrenaline, and kind of just barely managed to walk into camp. But it was, really? it was crushing. It was. How, my, how
0: did the others get
1: up? I think the the older folks, our friends. Um, they're older than me. They're yeah. almost 50. They, I think they, really? they were in a similar state <laughs> to me. Right. The kids and were remarkably the kids. Re- resilient. They, eh? I, It's amazing. It's, so that's part of it is, you know, I'm just older than I was when I used to climb mountains. Yeah. And yeah. so it was uh, kind of coming to grips with my own <laughs> mortality. Um, yeah. And, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. These, these kids, you know, they were exhausted and their knees were burning and, but then they were fine and they were like, running around and swimming in the, in the river and stuff and the older folks were just crushed just so my you know my legs were just in pain for for days after that That's hilarious. Uh, my, I was I was shocked but anyways so the hiking was hard but absolutely worth it I, I realized as I was doing this trek that I'd never been so deep in the wilderness in Madagascar as you know in Madagascar you get into lots of different forests, but you're almost always just right at the edge, you know? You drive through yeah. villages and bananas and chickens, and and then you get into some forest. And, and the forest is wonderful, and it's loaded with wildlife. Mm-hmm. But there's not too many places here where you just get deep, deep in the wilderness, and you don't see anybody. And mm-hmm. Marodzesi is, is just, it's, I think it's by far the wildest place I've seen in Madagascar. Wow. And, and it's, it's extensive, and... The peak is right in the middle. And so when you achieve that peak, not only are you getting to the top of a mountain with an incredible view. I mean, you can see the Indian ocean, you can see, uh, it's just an unbelievable view. You're also at the center of this, one of the, I would say two or three biggest, wildest areas in Madagascar. And just achieving that was incredibly satisfying. And just looking down that mountain and seeing so much untouched forest, you know, just big rivers flowing down through into the lowlands, cool. totally forested. What was it the habitat was, like? It's all rainforest. All way up. Very, very humid. Really? But this was another amazing thing about it was that you start at sea level. So it's, it's big buttressed roots and lots of pandanus and palms. And then you see the whole transition. You go all the way up and right around 700 meters, you start to transition into more like cloud forest, higher elevation forest. Right. You get a lot of dwarf bamboo and more tree ferns. The trees are shorter. And then you climb all the way through that and you go into heath, basically a mix of like uh, grassland and heath at the top. So you're actually above treeline. It was, I mean, for me, it was so cool, you know, on a Madagascar.
0: eh? You know, 2,000 meters. I mean, treeline is normally
1: way up i think this peak is so isolated that it just gets hammered yeah. by the winds especially the trade winds right. it's, yeah. it's i mean it was freezing up there when i was there it was absolute yeah. when you were on the wind windy side of the mountain i mean you, uh-huh. you would have hypothermia in no time if you just stayed exposed there <laughs> um so i think you know some of the mountains in the northeast united states are like that too they're extremely right. they're not that high but they're extremely windy and it's definitely sort of tundra up there. What do they
0: call that? They, 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 those funny like little dwarf trees and stuff. Is it Krumholtz, Krumholtz effect? Yeah,
1: Krumholtz. That's usually like mm. stunted spruce fir. This was a yeah. uh, heath, you know, it was Erica's. Um, right. and, and just absolutely fascinating plants up there. Lots of endemics, a little dwarf palms, like one meter tall. Really? Um, little dwarf pandanus, um, weird succulent things. I mean, it was just this wonderland. There's um, going to be
0: some endemic plants up there. Eh? It's absolutely, there. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a yeah. bunch of
1: endemic palms in Maguazezi. I, I didn't really know what I was looking at, but I was just in awe of it. Uh, <laughs> Did remarkable. you set your camera? Up? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I had yeah. my uh, <laughs> I had my recording set up, my camera, right. my uh, bird vokes. Uh, I, I I kind of felt like I was making up for lost time in a way. It was like I I was eager to <laughs> kind of uh, record and Got contribute something. everything.
0: The, any, any interesting herbs or anything on the way?
1: Almost nothing. Eh? I, I mean, I know that there are some really interesting frogs up there. It was quite dry mm-hmm. and it just didn't have time to seek things out. Um, the, the bird thing, life, you know, when
0: you, when your mission is to get up and down, you know, there's not, that, you can't really stop too much.
1: No, no, I, you'd have to sort of camp higher up and, and go out at night mm-hmm. and, and maybe go in the rainy season to really see a lot of, a lot right. of frogs. The, the bird life was pretty interesting. You know, on a Madagascar tour, we go after these higher elevation species, normally in a national park called Ranomafana, and you're basically just getting high enough that you're into the lower elevational limits for a few birds, like a Uh cryptic warbler is one. (laughs) But it was amazing going from above 1,200 meters, cryptic warbler was the most common bird. They were, they were just everywhere. So on a, on a Madagascar tour, you're just trying to get one, you know, that's just at the lowest possible <laughs> limit. And it was just absolutely everywhere. And then at some point, I climbed above the cryptic warblers and out of the forest. Wow. And then I was I was just hearing cryptic warblers everywhere down in the forest below me. So it was a, a very different perspective on on Malagasy habitats. You know, I've never been in what those. What did you get of... up
0: at the top then? Are there any birds right at the top? At the
1: top, there was stone shat. And okay. yeah. um, suimanga manga sunbirds were still there. Uh-huh. I guess there's enough flowers and heathy things. Yeah, a little... um, Madagascar brush warblers—they also like uh-huh. heath. Oh. And that was about it. Once he got out of the forest, yeah. Yeah, it was remarkably yeah. uh, slim pickings. But apparently, Zedzi is the only high mountain in Madagascar that has never been burned, which is part of really? why it's such a botanical wonderland. Yeah, I guess. Ooh.
0: Probably I bet there's
1: some interesting insects of that as well, eh? Oof, uh, yeah, I saw, I saw. a lot of cool insects, but mm. yeah, it's it's just such a such a wonderland of like botanically and just in terms of being wilderness and the view. It was, you know, I felt a great sense of happiness and achievement, having gotten up that mountain and gotten the whole family there and in the middle of yeah. a pandemic, you know, it was a very life affirming <laughs> thing to do. Not like, oh, I'm that so awesome great. that I managed to do this, but just yeah. like the fact that we had, uh, we'd managed to do this against quite a bit of uh, adversity and difficulty. It was satisfying it was, and it was great to be with the family too. And I'm, I'm so yeah. used to doing this sort of thing and they're sort of at the other end of the world and the fact that they were sort of around me or in the camp just down below was really uh, a different experience and one I quite enjoyed.
0: So I, how, how did they enjoy the whole experience? Was it uh,
1: They absolutely they, loved it. They loved it. Did they? Yeah. Yeah, yeah the, swimming in the rivers there was, the kids loved that. Uh, older daughter, Swatina, loved uh, just the physical challenge, I think, of of getting up the mountain. You know, she's in good shape and. She's just she's 18 years old, so I think she's looking for challenges. I tell um, you, my
0: my wife and uh, son are going to be listening to this and uh, making little plans in their head. I think. I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you guys right, absolutely
1: right should do this. Yeah, I hope
0: you. I hope you. I hope you're happy to do it one more time Kim.
1: No, I'm up. I'm up for it. We, you know, the whole family we're very keen to go back to the first two camps. They're just right. paradise, especially the second camp. It's, really? It has this fantastic view, just surrounded by forest. To climb the mountain it's uh yeah, as described so yeah m- we might stay at camp two and cheer you guys on
0: so i i i spoke to you briefly just after you got back um from this thing because there's a very special lima in uh Machuzedi, and um yeah at, at the time i spoke to you you hadn't seen it so i'm keen to know whether you found the, uh, the silky sifaka
1: yeah so we never managed to find it I guess we'll wrap up this episode with an interview with one of our local guides, a guy called Franco, a uh, really nice guy, um, speaks English really well, just very, very keen, just eager to learn. He doesn't know the birds really well yet, but he's he was just soaking up information. So, But he was uh, desperate to find the silky sufaka. and so he right. was basically just <laughs> shooting off and going up a mountain and then coming back around mm-hmm. and, and looking and looking. And he never found it. We never bumped into it. We never heard it. You can actually smell their urine and uh, feces. Oh, really? They've so they've been oh, so they were recently. around. No, no, no. We, you can when they've been around, and but we never smelled oh, when they've been around. Okay. Any yeah. signs? Um, so we were one of the first groups to be in there post-pandemic. Yeah. And interestingly, right um, in the early months of the pandemic, some local people had gone into the national park and robbed the camps. The three camps and stolen a bunch yeah. of mattresses and cooking stuff. And so I don't know. I don't know what happened. I uh, Franco, you know, he was pretty confident that they were around and maybe they just moved away. They do have very large territories. Yeah. I am concerned.
0: Um l- looking in the book at all the limas, this is one of the really the ones that really stands out for me. It's sort of really it's kind of all kind of whitish color, isn't it? Really kind of um striking, striking Lima. It looks like an rarest? albino
1: creature. It's yeah. is big, all white lemur. It even has like pinkish eyes. It, um,
0: wow! And one of the rarest primates in the world, probably. Or yeah?
1: almost always makes that you know top twenty-five rarest primates list. They're down to around two hundred, I guess. So the disappearance of uh, one of the main troops of silky sifakas is pretty concerning. Hopefully, they just
0: moved away, and I guess it goes they, back to one of the things we were saying a few episodes back about you know. When you like during lockdown and nobody's allowed to go in the national parks, you can't actually see what's going on. You know, often in the news, they're talking about, oh, you know, the environment's doing really well, whatever. But but when it comes down to sort of um, individual species like this, I think things can, you know, bad things can go unnoticed. Yep. Oh, and there's another thing that
1: I I should Mm -hmm. mention. You know, I talked about the higher elevation stuff and getting up into the cryptic warbler territory. There's another rare Malagasy endemic bird, yellow-bellied sunbird acidy that's only found at mm-hmm. higher elevations and it, it's largely restricted to sort of ridge lines kind of ridge more line, stunted yeah. cloud forest on ridge lines so i thought i was going to find this bird all over the place up there because yeah. this is like ideal habitat perfect yeah um i had one one yeah. yellow-bellied sunbird acidy, and what's weird is common sunbird acidis were all over the place on the ridge lines where I expected to find yellow-bellied um, really? so this is pretty concerning as well from a climate change perspective you know you just wonder
0: that's the thing they- when something's got such a such a, a niche habitat you know really sort of um, narrow habitat requirements and then things change you know it gets hotter or drier or whatever then it's uh, it's got nowhere to go
1: nowhere to go yep above it's already at the highest most stunted forest and then the climate changes it gets warmer maybe they get outcompeted competed by the common yeah. sunbird acides and then boom you know this thing could be extinct so that I found that deeply concerning you know the last couple of years on tours they've sort of disappeared from where we used to find them at Mufana. Yeah, yeah. at least people haven't been finding them you know it's hard to say definitively they aren't there but we consistently found that bird in the past it seems to have disappeared from there I thought it would be all over in Mahwitzitz and it wasn't mm. so yeah this is one of these things that could be like sliding rapidly towards extinction without anybody even really knowing. Any other adventures from your trip, Uh, (laughs) noteworthy? Well, after Mahodzezi, yeah, we spent a few days just in towns and kind of recovering and (laughs) um, Uh Uh learning about vanilla, and that was great. But the last thing we did before we we did that absolutely uh, soul-crushing drive to get home was (laughs) we visited a private reserve called Bobangira, which is actually uh-huh. on the coast. Um, I, okay. I didn't even realize there was any sort of littoral forest left away from Mashawala, uh-huh. but there's a decent tract of, of littoral forest and it's actually owned as a private reserve by a friend of ours. And so we went out and camped a couple nights there and that was, well, it was dead flat. So after Magozezi it was uh, kind of strangely enjoyable to just be in perfectly flat <laughs> forest. just. And it's very open as well. So Makoja it's very steep and thick, and you know it's hard to see wildlife. So this was just very open and flat and easy to see things. So that was from a habitat perspective, just a very interesting place to go. Pretty poor in birds. Eh? It was uh, right. Didn't didn't have many of the many of the real eastern rainforest birds. It really had a reduced subset, mostly general forest birds. a Couple lemurs. Um, there was a dwarf lemur there looked unlike any described species like very very gray <laughs> a lot like the the western you know the uh the fat-tailed dwarf lemur so yeah. that was that was
0: pretty interesting for for people that don't know that the, the lemurs the whole group it's just constantly being revised and updated and split up into new species it's a very sort of dynamic group so it, it really wouldn't be a very surprising thing for something like that to be here uh unknown. not at all not at all. There
1: there was just in the last couple of years there was a big paper in which several new dwarf lemurs were described. And it was good and you know, but you can only survey so many places and they only had so many samples exactly. from so many places yeah. and there easily could have been more species between the cracks of that study. Wow. So yeah, we wrapped up in Bobangira and then it was you know, I didn't really want to do that crushing drive in one day, but there's really no good place to
0: stop. And so are, we, are there any boats that sort of go up, back up to uh, to Diego from there?
1: Yeah, there actually there are from Voimart to Diego. Be a
0: quicker way to get back. On
1: I don't think they take vehicles, so that's that's oh, the problem. Right? But yeah. Uh, yeah, it was it was sounding pretty tempting. We even talked about flying back and <laughs> how could we manage? to right. take a domestic so you flight. Pay, and,
0: p- pay somebody to drive your car back.
1: Uh, yep, but in the end, we just <laughs> uh, just did it. Um, um, you know, you, you think psychologically oh, it'll be better on the way back. Cause we, we kind of know how far it yeah. is and how bad it is. Nope. It was even worse. <laughs> we, um, we left, you know, I woke up at five in the morning when we drove and we got home at 11 PM. Um, oh, you did it all in one day. One shot. It, it you, was yeah. just, I mean, was I was slapping myself point. in the face and, uh, you know, eating vitamin C just to keep my eyes open by the
0: end uh, it was i'll i'll take credit for for your uh taking vitamin c to to keep you awake and um, something that can that got off me i because I, I don't i don't drink coffee so instead of coffee i've got like a little pot of vitamin c powder like on the dashboard and whenever i start to get um yeah i sort of uh, i just have a little little mouthful of this uh, vitamin c and it it really sort of jolts you awake
1: unfortunately i didn't have the good stuff the white powder but i i you oh, really? know, i had some pills but you, just pill, yeah. just the acidity of it definitely wakes you yeah. up, even if it doesn't really <laughs> stimulate you. But, oof! It was a it was a brutal drive. You know, the the twenty four yeah. hours after that, we just all felt beat up. But ah, everybody's recovered, and yeah, just very happy to have done it and, and gotten to Mahozezi. Oh, and we saw yeah. a, a, we saw a couple helmet vangas, but they were super elusive. But uh-huh. my wife. That was her number one that was her dream malagasy bird was helmet vanga oh she hadn't seen it yet she hadn't seen it and we right. actually she and i didn't see it together until the last morning when they were on the way out right. of the forest so that was, was extremely ah oh, absolutely loved <laughs> yeah, it yeah. i mean it's just an epic bird i mean every time i see helmet I, vanga i just get this rush of adrenaline i
0: guess you can put uh you can put a picture of that up on the uh the gallery yeah
1: yeah absolutely absolutely yeah, Got it's really a lot of
0: people say it's one of the you know it's in the sort of top ten world's birds. It, it looks ridiculous. It looks like a sort of cartoon character of a bird. This like huge honking
1: bright blue bill. It's such a strange bird. You know, most of the vangas are loud as well, like just vocally mm-hmm. conspicuous. The helmet vanga is so quiet. Um, you mm-hmm. know, I actually I very actually very heard cool. one and recorded it on this trip. Mm-hmm. But this was you know I spent five days in there. Um, and most of the sightings that I had of Helmet vangas were just completely silent. It's just this thing kind of gliding into the mid-story and sitting there in this like glowing blue bill with this huge <laughs> cask <laughs> and then just kind of disappearing without ever making a sound. Uh, it's just, it's a weird bird on every
0: score. It's just unlike anything else. Nah, it's great. It's wonderful. Well, Ken, that sounds like quite an adventure. Um, I'm sure... Uh... Yeah, so hopefully from now on we'll be uh, we'll be back to a uh, weekly weekly podcast. Um, Indeed. Yeah. Any uh, any final words before we play the uh, the interview?
1: Well, it did occur to me during my time in Macuizé that for a, a sort of a backpacker with lots of time on their hands and, and you know a mm-hmm. very skilled birder, you could pretty much go to Zeds and see virtually all the eastern rainforest birds in about a week wow. of hardcore birding. Yeah. Because you get the whole transect of elevations, you know. I had both helmet and yeah. bernier's vangas. Um, you might even get dusky tetraka. So I was I was searching for that for days and days. This is yeah. the most uh, enigmatic Malagasy bird by far. Yeah. It's just almost still. unknown. It's no one has ever photographed it in the field, um, mm-hmm. and and it has been recorded in Maruzid. Um I saw it there twelve years ago, and didn't manage right. to find it on this trip. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it could be an interesting alternative for a, a, a hardcore birder to doing the traditional circuit of sites um, and, and actually quite cheap as well, you know, cause you're just camping in the forest. It's staying That's in great. one of those little cabins costs like $4 a night or something. Um, Ooh, yeah. There. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good to, good to be back and good to catch yep. up and uh, yeah, we'll be uh, releasing podcasts more regularly for a while now. Yeah. So I, I actually had to listen to this uh, interview already. It's uh, it's fascinating. He sounds like a really incredible guy. He eh? is an amazing guy. And, and just running into a guy like this just in the middle of nowhere, you know, relatively you. nowhere in Madagascar, finding out that there is an English club in Ondapa, it was it's actually very encouraging to me. I did a lot of talking about Malagasy politics and <laughs> economics with Franco, and, you know, he's just... He understands things well. He's very patriotic, but realistic. And in just meeting people like that, ten years younger than me, he sounded very positive, eh? He very positive. Said, yeah, it, it just gives optimistic you
0: optimistic about the future.
1: It gives you some, yeah, some optimism about the about this country. You know that there is a a new generation rising up that's like interested in conservation and you know, plugged into the rest of the world. So. Yeah, it was great to meet yeah. Franco, and hopefully, you folks will enjoy this little interview I did with him. It's about uh, what twenty minutes long.
0: Yeah, yeah, no,
1: well worth listening to. So I guess we'll wrap up with that yep. interview, and then no natural sound
0: for this week, and then next week you, you can actually you can actually hear a few uh, a few birds calling in the background of like the interview. <laughs> I, I think was... I guess you did it. I guess you did it. You, you, it was sort of raining, and and you just sort of took a break and just sat down and had a chat, right? Yep,
1: yep. Just in the middle of the forest, I think you can hear sweetong sunbird, Madagascar
0: bulbul. Yeah, it's it's wonderfully atmospheric, though. Just listening to the sort of rain falling through the through the forest. And I guess next week, maybe we'll start my uh, top ten
1: mammals. We'll see see if something yeah. else jumps out, but that's the tentative plan.
0: <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, uh, that's all from us. So, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll be seeing you very soon.
1: Uh, so I'm sitting here in the rainforest in the uh, Machozi National Park. It's about what's what's the elevation here? 700
2: 775.
1: 775 meters, so that's about 3000 feet in the middle of some beautiful pristine rainforest. It's actually raining right now. We're listening to rainforest birds all around us. And I'm with my my new f- friend and a local guide, uh, Franco Razonarison. Razonarison He's, Franco san Franco. Yeah. He's uh yeah, he's a local guide here. And uh yeah, I just wanna introduce him. So you came you come from Mandena? Montenena. You come from, Manantinina, from Manantinina, Manantinina, yeah. Which is a it's a, a sort of a small, medium sized town near the national park at the bureau, right? Like the yes. office. Yeah. So how long have you been working as a local guide?
2: I have been worked a guide um for
1: five years. Five years. Yeah. How how old are you if you don't mind my asking Yeah,
2: yeah no problem <laughs> I'm
1: 28 years old Okay yeah So he's exactly 10 years so. younger than me How did you start working as a guide and and working in the national park
2: Well um the first uh, I learned about uh, amphibians and reptiles in school oh, And cool. we have yeah and we have a uh, English club in Nrapa Well I have uh, I've so many friends are interesting as well, to, to learn about more uh, reptiles and amphibians and uh, lemurs as well. And then I, that my mind came to want to be a
1: guide. Sure, natural. Yeah, yeah. When you have English and you know about uh, the wildlife. Yeah. So, um, did you study in university, reptiles and amphibians or? Uh, or? No, just uh,
2: at uh, high school.
1: But it wasn't. You didn't have a course of of right. You, it was just your passion, right? Yeah. You just, just liked. You just liked yeah. herbs or reptiles. Uh, yeah. I
2: have uh, some books and uh, I learn. My uh, this is some other guides come to me, help me how to learn about the reptiles and the fibans and the lemurs. Yeah. That's and cool. the and the bird as well. But now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm no, I'm trying to convert Franco to a birder slowly, slowly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, birds are a little bit challenging especially if you don't have good binoculars and yeah. the calls and everything yeah so when you were learning about herps as a as a kid or whatever in high school yeah. how did you study i mean did you on the internet or did you have the the Bensis and glob book uh, or how did you get information
2: uh just, uh just to have a book the book is um the, the madagascar easier. reptiles book yeah madagascar yeah. reptiles yeah no, that's a great book, book. it's yeah.
1: a, it's an amazing book yeah it's a little bit outdated now but uh it's a great book yeah if if i remember i'll show you mine it's in our car yeah. mine is like a oh barboli. yeah yeah I, yeah I have it like wrapped in leather and it's like my my herp bible
2: you know um the Marojejy is in the server region in the north madagascar at the Sava region so it's it is about 60 kilometers from Sambava. It's uh, on the way to Andapa. And you drop in the mountain, then you can see the office and uh, where you can have a ticket, everything. And then you take a local guide and uh, start, walking. start walking. <laughs> <laughs> you, so you start at you at
1: about 100 meters, right? And then yeah. the the top of the mountain is 2,000? 2, 2,130 32. So you climb 2000 meters, which is about 7500 feet up the mountain.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, so even yeah, from the village you can see the beautiful of the mountain. That's a uh, call uh, th- um three teeth
1: Mhm. There's three peaks that yeah, three are really peaks. spectacular. Yeah. Uh. yeah. So just to introduce Zezi to folks, um, so yeah, as as Franco said, it's in the northeast of Madagascar, it's in the rainforest zone, and it's a big isolated mountain that rises all the way up above tree line. And then it's a big national park and it protects a huge area of pristine rainforest. One of the best left in Madagascar, I would say. One of the biggest tracts of forest, right?
2: 50,000 hectares. 50,000 hectares, that's a lot.
1: And it's just this beautiful, pristine wilderness. Um, it's very encouraging to see in Madagascar so much forest. <laughs> yeah, so did you always like forests and nature as a kid? Or, ha- oh, yes, yeah, <laughs> forests and natural mountain man. Ma- yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Franco is a little bit famous among the local guides as the guy who likes to climb the summit. The summit is an incredibly arduous uh, hike, and at the top, there is a, a pot with yeah. a little notebook inside where people yeah. write their names and Franco's name is there just over and over <laughs> again he's been to the summit so many times with so yeah. many different groups of people so he's a he's a mountain man he likes to hike and climb
2: yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> and the Marojejy one uh, there's one one thing it makes it really famous Yeah, because we have uh, Silky Sifaka mm. White slimmer. so in Madagascar it's only two Parks we can find it here in the first in the Marjidi mm-hmm. and then in the Janahar Besid. Janahar it's um, from Manantina 75 kilometers from here, so it's not, to not to, too it's far. Like, it's ooh. the yeah, not too far.
1: 75 kilometers, and so the Silky Sifaka has a tiny little range in northeast yeah. Madagascar, it's critically endangered. Yeah, it's in the world's top 25 most endangered primates mm. and this is a little bit sad but so we've yeah. been here what we've been searching four days now Four days, yeah. and we haven't seen silky safakas we're some of the first people to come into the park since the pandemic yeah and it's a little bit concerning that maybe people hunted them or something happened that scared them away maybe just hiding <laughs> and maybe they're just not used to people now maybe they saw us and they're afraid of us yeah because they lost a little time. bit of their uh yeah their tameness. I don't know, but uh it's a little bit scary when so there's about two hundred in the world. You said three two, three hundred silky sufakas? Yeah, two hundred. Two hundred. Yeah. So it's concerning when you don't see them. I hope they're okay.
2: Yeah, it's you, but...
1: I'm curious, um the, you said that there's an English club in Andapa. Yeah. How many people participate in, in Andapa is kind of a small town of small town. I don't know. Yeah. Twenty yeah, thousand people or something like it's that. It's uh,
2: forty-eight thousand. Okay, well, yeah, much bigger than
1: I thought. So, like fifty thousand people. So, how many people in the English club?
2: Well, um, I think it's uh, fifty. Fifty oh, wow. people. Yeah, that's a lot of. That's because uh, a bit, the yeah.
1: people, the
2: young people end up where they are very enjoy learning English, and oh. uh, huh. but it's very cool, very cool people, huh. sociable and very nice people.
1: Yeah. yeah. So Franco does a pretty good British accent, he, he speaks with the sort of an American accent normally but he's capable of a British accent, would would you be willing to give us a little sample of British English? Well
2: don't mind give me water, <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty, <laughs> it's a little bit cockney. <laughs> you know like East London yeah that's <laughs> uh, pretty cool to hear a Malagasy person with a British British accent yeah one more yeah yeah
2: g- go on yeah we saw Lima oh, today <laughs>
1: <laughs> we saw Lima? Oh, lovely
2: yeah uh, very good okay <laughs> um, yeah please come to visit the National Park it's very beautiful and the forest is in nature and when you come here, you will see how beautiful it is, and um, um, highly recommended. Okay. This place is paradise. <clears throat> yeah.
1: If you're, as long as you have a little bit of physical fitness, you can do it. And, yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking: Is there anything else I want to ask you about? We have time. It's still raining. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you're married, right? But you don't uh, have kids yet. Yeah. Yeah. I'm married. Yeah. I
2: have uh, two kids. Oh. Okay. Cool. Yeah. One so
1: boy and one girl. The d- does your wife or your kids do they like nature? Are they into nature or uh,
2: they like nature a little bit? Yeah, reptiles, but, um, mammals, mammals. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, Everybody likes mammals. <laughs> yeah, they, they like lemurs. That's cool. Yeah, my my wife has been here before. And, in uh, in Mako-Zetsu. Yeah, yeah. It's so white fronted brown lemur. Yeah, yeah. And. She wants to come back here again next time. That's great. With That's my great. Kids.
1: I'm always whenever I see, I people in the national parks, I'm very happy. It's because yeah. it shouldn't just be foreigners enjoying <coughs> these places. It, yeah, definitely. And it's it's pretty cheap for for national. For national, yeah, which yeah, is good. Very cheap. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I'm curious. So you, so you work now mainly as a local guide in Makotzitz, and then you also I think you have a vanilla plantation, right?
2: Yeah, yeah yeah
1: what do you have a goal so you're still young do you like is there <laughs> a, something else you'd like to do differently or um you have what What would be your goal
2: well because um, i'm uh yeah i'm a guide and i'm a farmer as well so i i, pr- I planted the vanilla so much uh, um it's already two thousand
1: Plants, plants, yes, plants. That's a lot of work.
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's a new. I mean, it's uh, I planted two years ago. Okay. um, Now we don't. I'm just waiting for the. How long does it take
1: for the for the pods or the flowers?
2: Oh, nine
1: nine months. But after after you plant a new plantation. Yeah, yeah.
2: So wait, um, five years. Five years. Or four years. It depends on how how much i mean how many times you you come there and then you take care of it Sure, because sure. It, it's very hard work you have to slash and to cut some trees because to keep it ne- open yeah to keep it open right because it needs 50-50 the sun, sun and, and Shade. The shade yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah
1: so you plant do you, you do seeds or you do little plants
2: uh we take a lion of uh uh-huh.
1: So a little liana, and then you you sort of <laughs> yeah. We, you put it in the ground, or or
2: we plant. Uh, we have zatrofa. Uh it's uh-huh. a very, Yeah. Very. Is a, a fast-growing plant, yeah, right? Yeah. A f- like then, a little tree. Yeah, and we plant the zatrofa mm-hmm. first, mm-hmm. and then you dig at just the base at the uh, bottom of the the plant. Yep. And then you put the lion, the vanilla inside. The sorry. And, and then sorry. It, it sort of climbs and then the you, you stack in it. You stuck with the plants and yep. you fix it. You tight it. And then you wait. It's a lot uh, of work, man. Yeah, three <laughs> months and then you see the new sports of the new new year. Wow. Of,
1: um, and then Fine. it slowly gets bigger and bigger and then you know, after four <coughs> yeah, or five years, after four, it's five big enough years. Yeah, that and it then starts to flower. Yeah, exactly. And and then that's actually the vanilla pod is the...
2: Yeah, and it starts to
1: give flowers.
2: I think it's not all the 2000 give flower in one year. I mean, it's when uh, it's became like four years or five years. But it, maybe some is late and, and some can give flowers and the... And uh, during the flower season you come <laughs> to, you know, to a fields mm-hmm. every day to, to check the flowers pollinate. and to make pollinate. Yeah. So I guess
1: you have to hand pollinate vanilla because there's no natural <coughs> pollinators in Madagascar, right? So yeah. you have to do it every single flower by hand, eh? Yes, so yes. So much So work. you
2: take a spike of the orange, mm-hmm. f- fatty. Mm-hmm. You take a fatty to make a flower. And then it's not a, uh, because it's very smooth. And when you push up the pollen, then you take it out mm-hmm. slowly. And then you press by your uh, thumb and forefinger finger, finger yeah. yes, and press a little bit. <laughs> but the uh, man, it's very slow to make a flower, but the woman is very quick. Huh. <laughs> they have a soft hand. You- Oh, really? yes. So they have their natural technique, <laughs> the is natural better. technique. <laughs> exactly. Are, ah, yeah. <laughs> crush the flower. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny.
1: So are you happy with the, with this life here in, uh, in, uh, yes, of course, yeah, of course. <laughs> this is a beautiful part of Madagascar. Oh it's, yeah. It's fertile <laughs> and you have forest and it's, quite peaceful. Humid and
2: we have very good uh, climates. Mm. Yeah. We can plant everything
1: in here anything yes, anything but we had a few apples and franco wanted to have the cores because he wanted <laughs> to, to try to plant uh apple, yeah, apple yeah. seeds and see if it'll grow in his garden because he yeah, has so many I'm trying <laughs> different kinds of plants
2: <laughs> maybe our climate could be comfortable maybe yeah, yeah. it's a little bit cool here yeah,
1: yeah middle yeah. kind of middle elevation <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, that's a good project is anybody in this area working w- to do reforestation to plant Trees yeah,
2: yeah. We yeah. have uh, the local people and the the MNP give a that's program. A Madagascar National Park. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Madagascar National Park. They give uh, the seeds. The oh, baby this trees. This is the Grand de vie program. Yeah, yeah, Divi, yeah. yeah. and the uh, and the older people planted <laughs> outside of a park, not yeah, inside. that's great. Yeah, so they can planted it whatever they want to
1: plant it and are people doing it there yeah. people are participating yeah, in the yeah. program oh, that's great yeah and w- what kind of land where do they plant trees is it their personal land their family land or is it like a kind of domenial land or or where where they put in the trees
2: uh, they have because now they have their own land I mean yeah. personal land like if I want to plant trees and then just a plant trees. She just and do it. And it's basically land. free
1: to take yeah. the baby trees. Yeah, yeah. Free. That's great. No
2: money, no. Everyone can have it.
1: What is do you think is the motivation of people to plant trees on their land? Like, why do they do it? Ah. Uh, because <laughs> they could also, they <laughs> could plant a lychee or something that has yeah. fruit. Right? Yeah. yeah. So why do they plant trees, uh, forest, natural trees?
2: I think the first goal is. Uh, to To avoid destroying this uh, national park, Marjedi, so yeah. they can plant the trees outside. I mean, in their land, yeah. and then once grow up, and then they can use it by themselves. Sure, yeah, sure. Like and then hardwood. we don't touch the national park. Yeah, yeah. That's the, um, oh. the first reason. To <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, so you think people value forest here? Yeah, yeah, they do. They do. Yeah, that's that's encouraging to hear. Some sometimes you you wonder, people just seem to cut, 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 cut. Yeah, it's it's good that they value, still value the forest. <laughs> yeah. Do people? Do you think people here see the connection between forest and rain? Like when you have forest, it rains more. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. The people see. It. can I see you, that. Yeah, the feeling, uh-huh. because uh, the people watching tv they see the soft part in madagascar It's very they don't wide, want to be like that so they want to be like that <laughs> so now they have they came their mind that okay we need the forest That's the good. forest is attracting the rain so i think yeah. it's yeah it's a good uh, program for planting <laughs> the trees to
1: to keep the rain. Keep the line, <laughs> don't yeah. be like the southwest. <laughs> you don't want to be like yeah. the semi-desert. Yeah. The the for people who don't know the southwest of Madagascar, it's always dry, and it sort of yeah. seems to be getting drier with climate change. Yeah. And there's a lot of people there, and there's, it's a humanitarian yeah. crisis every couple of years. Yeah. So here in the east, we don't have those problems uh, so far. Well.
2: Yeah. If the the forest is finished, I mean it's. Uh, cut all of the trees i mean no rain no rain so it's we're <clears> difficult <throat> to plant something vanilla it needs it, needs it moisture. a lot yeah, absolutely yeah
1: well you can see it you know we were talking about the when you drive from voimar to sambaba you yeah. can see it's it's drying the, out it's uh, getting drying. drier yeah. and you start to see savannah birds there too like you start to see sakalava weaver yeah, and uh, cisticolas and Madagascar larks. Yeah. The land changes into savanna, uh, and then it gets drier, and yeah, that's yeah. not good for anything. Not good. Yeah. Maybe it's good for cows, but yeah.
2: uh, the the part I mean, the region have a uh, lots of forest. The wind is fresh, mm-hmm. but uh, no forest. The wind is hot. It's and dry. <laughs> is, yeah. uh, dry. Oh, that's where it's I live is bad. like that
1: but here is quite n- n- soft yeah, yeah soft yeah. humidity yeah. in the air
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> well the rain has stopped and so we need to sort of start trekking our way down the mountain it looks yeah. like a good opportunity to walk yeah anything else you want to tell to a international audience about Mahudzezi or Madagascar
2: uh, yeah uh, the Madagascar is uh, it's a beautiful uh, island, so especially north <laughs> Madagascar, east northeast Madagascar. So you can come to visit our park, so you can see the beautiful the mountain and the difficult, uh, different of the culture in the Sava region. It's very beautiful here.
1: It is, it's a very different Madagascar is a funny place because everyone speaks Malagasy but there are strong regional differences, yeah. so I live in the northern tip of Madagascar, uh, Diego Suarez, but Diego is very different from here, in the Sava, Sava region is, is very different, even culturally and yeah. the climate and everything, yeah. so that's the great thing about Madagascar is there's so much diversity within this one island. Yeah. It, it's like a, a continent almost, like a mini mini-continent. Well, thanks for chatting, uh, Franco. Thanks. Pleasure Pleasure yeah. to uh, meet you and chat with you. <laughs> Thank
2: you, Ken. Yeah. Thanks <laughs> for attending me. Happy.